Abolition. Abolition. But here in New Jersey, we are in one of the most racially diverse states in the nation. People sometimes look at that and say, well, racism isn't our problem or isn't a problem here. Do you believe that that's misguided thinking? It is absolutely misguided to think racism isn't a problem in New Jersey. And and part of that, um, I think, failure to understand it has to do with people not remembering the history of New Jersey itself. New Jersey is distinct among states in the Northeast for having a much longer history of slavery. It has the, the last Gradual Emancipation Act in 1804, and there continue to be people born into slavery in that year, and then subsequently, really through the 1830s, there are people who are enslaved in some form or, or another in New Jersey. So the history of slavery is longer in New Jersey than other places in the region, and there was also a history of forms of Jim Crow. I mean, even segregation that James Baldwin described when he visited New Jersey and Princeton specifically um, in the mid-20th century. And we see the residues of that. There's persistent racial inequality. There's persistent segregation in New Jersey schools. And so it's a misunderstanding and that, that can often impede efforts to address inequality in the state.
I'm in the penitentiary. I need that real emancipation. No slavery, don't sweat my situation. No progress without struggles like growth. In November's ballot question, thanks to FIFO. Hurt the bottom line of them corporations. No more making money off incarceration. I'm in the 13s with no hesitation So I can talk about my mule and my reparations Over the father snatched out of the home uh, Leaving mothers and children all alone Taking and collect calls over their telephones And for black people, such a familiar song Not a crack baby, but was born in the 80s Reagan made a deal to keep my family having great needs Seven uncles, most of them were doing time All was a flash before my eyes, we don't say cheap Got no manners, so most of my homies take please. Get released to keep their freedom, gotta pay fees. See the orange uniform is for the worst team. Coming for the bottom, play it off like an AC. Rules like potato salad, man, who made these? One out of every four in prison skin is like me. Decades after they implemented the 13th. Numb to the pain like we chugging Malibu Bay. Vive tu vida, tienes un destino Óyeme y coge de este consejo Tú eres libre desde tu creación Deja que tu existencia y tu presencia Exudan amor y alumbre en la tierra Y ay, cómo nos vamos a elevar No hay que sufrir y no hay que llorar Vesteña hacia adelante como un elefante Pa'lante en la lucha y echamos pa'lante No es verdad si no es en libertad No es verdad si no es en libertad Before Christopher sailed the harbor, his story that he tells, these are tells of monsters. And even in those tales of his story, they don't never talk about how they came to conquer. What about the Olmecs? Wisdom of the Toltecs. Gold tip arrowheads to stretch them like a bow flex. Powers in the march, the artists in the protest. Jim Crow laws and you can hang them by the throat next. 13th Amendment, the dirt is extensive. Based on principles, some folks be suspicious. Even the school systems will school you to miss this. And this is how I move, how I move with the business. This is endless. Abolition. You just heard Imani Perry, professor of African American studies at Princeton University, and that was followed by Amend the 13th New Jersey Cipher with Tony Perkins, Ibn Sharif Shakur, Prices, Chris Gatson, Keith Chandler, and Dennis Feebo. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms and as well as Amazon Music. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, Yusuf. I'm here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina, doing the damn thing. Yes, sir. And, you know, uh, in our last live episode, which was two weeks ago, you know, Max, you held it down. While I was out sick, so I appreciate that. I appreciate all the calls and texts that everybody reached out to me, wishing me well. So thank you all for that. And in that episode that you had, you explained the four competing groups attempting to dominate the U.S. justice system narrative 
using the parable of the blind men and the elephant, which is a story of a group of blind men who've never come across an elephant before and who learn and imagine what the elephant is like by touching it. Each blind man feels a different part of the elephant's body, but only one part, such as the side or the tusk. They then make a determination of what creature they are touching based on their limited knowledge. So what groups, what narratives, what's the difference, what do they have in common, is it a problem? To find out, go to our archives at abolitiontoday.org and listen to that episode. This week we're joined by New Jersey slavery abolitionist Dennis Febo, Febo, and Anton Henshaw to discuss abolitionist efforts in the state with Senate Concurrent Resolution, that's SCR number 135. And as always, we'll also bring the words of our abolitionist ancestors back to life for a new generation in our Bridging the Gap segment. So before we jump into tonight's topic, Max, thanks again for holding down the fort. How have the last two weeks been? Um, it's been hectic as always, man. Um, last week, Pablo and I celebrated our work wedding anniversary. Um, that was yes, one sir. of the reasons why we did a replay. And also, I've been still under the weather. Uh, <laughs> Is it 35 years or 37 years? I always well, forget. We have been together um, for 35 years, but uh, legally wedded, that was our 28th. Okay. So uh, wow. we had a little steak dinner here at the center and just quietly enjoyed our anniversary. Uh, but we've also been, I've also been doing a lot of work, you know, um, with the Abolish Slavery National Network. We've had some very powerful uh, gatherings, like our state operations meeting. I met up with uh, some folks at New York University who were authoring a book. Uh, they're also a part of 13th Forward, and uh, they came in on our state operations meeting, and they want to include the work we're doing in the new book that they're putting out. So all of our people who are out there, like Dennis and them, are going to be making history and being a part of history in these uh, publications that are coming out now uh, where they're talking about the work that we're doing. So he came to the meeting and uh, really got into it. He's seen how powerful this is to have all of us together as a national effort and not individuals working out of one city where you do or die, you know, <laughs> you either do right. or don't. Uh, if any of us win, we all win. And that's how we work. That's right. Yeah. And that's I've been right. going through, so I got some emotional roller coaster thing going on today. I'm very excited to have Brother Dennis Sebo back. I'm looking forward to having Tone here as well. I think this is his first time here as, our, as a guest on the program. But I've also been mm -hmm. really pissed off, man. You know, I talk to a lot of legislators on a regular basis. They bring me in to sell the story, so to speak, you know. And I keep hearing now about how they feel like they can't get this done unless it's some kind of popular movement or they got huge amounts of support or it's something like on the top 100 billboard. <laughs> it's crazy. Like <laughs> to end slavery, you got to have, it, it's got to be the wide path. You got to have everybody on board as if there's no opposition. Like you should be trying to end slavery because it's the right thing to do, not because it's popular. You know, it, it's crazy. Right. You show them the facts of it 
And he says, look, it's right here in your constitution. You either do or don't support it or have protection for your people. And it's, they, they don't even see how this is historic enough for them to do it because it's the right damn thing to do. And that's frustrating me, man. So, you know, some mixed emotions. I'll talk about that later. But I don't want to keep us going too long. I want to go ahead and bring in our guests. So if you don't mind, you want to introduce them uh, one at a time, and I'll bring them in. Yeah, for sure. So the first guest that we're going to bring in is Anton Henshaw, also known as Lacido Uhuru. He's a Rutgers Camden School of Criminal Justice graduate school student, the CEO and founder of Transformative Justice Initiative, creator uh, of Meet Him at the Gate, one of PJI's most notable initiatives, a founding member of NJSTEP, that's the New Jersey Scholarship and Transformative Education in Prisons Program, which began organizing in Trenton State Prison in 1992. A motivational speaker, motivational and public speaker, entrepreneur, new entry opportunity specialist for Camden County, and a lead credible messenger in New Jersey. Tone has dedicated himself to eradicating mass incarceration and transforming legislation to end the structural violence that threatens the public health of our communities. He is an outspoken advocate against police brutality in and outside the carceral spaces of New Jersey. He is committed to educating the community about the uh, machinations of brutality that permeates the carceral space that is disproportionately directed at black and brown carceral citizens. Welcome to the show, Tone. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, uh, Dennis has been talking about you guys for a while. Uh, me and Max uh, formally met a couple of weeks ago, um, discussing some things, and I'm just happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me. For sure, for sure. And, of course, we have our guy, Feebo. Dennis Feebo is a speaker, community organizer, artist, abolitionist, CEO and founder of Guazabara Insights, LLC. Dennis is a native of Brooklyn, New York, raised in many different parts of the U.S. and Puerto Rico. He attained his master's degree from the universities of Buffalo, Havana, Cuba, and Bahia, Brazil. Wow. Okay. I see you, Dennis. Dennis has been working with thousands of our incarcerated community members and juveniles for the past 10 years by devising a curriculum on cultural and social consciousness, education. He has been able to educate thousands around the country on self-knowledge and self-actualization. Guasabara now provides many educational, recreational services and events for the community at large with a focus on success for youth. Dennis also founded the New Jersey Credible Messenger Movement and the Amended 13th Movement in New Jersey, a lobbying strategy to remove the exception clause and add anti-slavery language to the New Jersey Constitution. Thiebo is also professor of graduate and undergraduate studies in health sciences at New Jersey City University. Welcome back to our show, our brother, Dennis Thiebo. What up, fam? Peace, peace. Peace, brother, peace. Welcome back to the show. Man, I'm glad to be back. Something happened? So you yeah, all can bro. hear me, right? Welcome, Alcibo and Tone. Um, you know, we had some conversations uh, about a week ago, and we've been having some now for several years. Uh, 
when he read the bio, I wanted to add in there that you're also one of the founding members of the Abolish Slavery National Network. That's and, right. And the sense of that butterfly effect, you're the, a large reason why many of the states have abolished slavery now because you brought us all together um, and snuck me in. <laughs> so uh, let me start out from there, brother. Uh, from that point till now, what are your thoughts? You come a long way, baby. Hello. You know, I sit, I sit back and think, and I, I, you know, I do see the ripple effect. Um, but it's been sweet and sour because you know we know that this is a big fight. To a lot of extent, felt like it's almost unachievable, but didn't care. You know, we got a lot of no's. We got a lot of, oh, that can't be done, or that's too big of an effort, or you need, uh, we don't have the money for that, or no one cares enough, you know, and then to go, what, four or five years later, we got, you know, eight states in, um, and why I say the sweet and sour is because with New Jersey, we haven't been able to move, and listening to the opening snippet that you had to speak about the way New Jersey is so, the economy is so ingrained in this that I think uh, because they haven't had uh, the time to uh, sort of fall on their foot for this to say, so they're stalling. You know, and the same thing, like, you know, people giving justification and they're saying we need more in order to justify this. And I'm on the same page with you, Max. I don't really care to entertain or educate, like, I, I feel like these are one of these things where it's just slavery, like, it shouldn't even be a conversation it should just be over you know, but we gotta do all this extra work, and mm-hmm. and you know, sometimes reluctantly because you don't, we do all this work and because the constitutional referendum process is so biased and skewed and controlled that we do we would, you know, potentially do so much work and it wouldn't be you know, put on the agenda. And that's how we get blocked in a lot of states. We get that stone stonewall and we're not able to move. So that's kind of where we're at today right now. I'll stop there. Yeah, we try to count our blessings because we have come a long way and we have made history and done things that have never been done before. But at the same time, because we're so ingrained in this now, we see the underbelly of it and just how nasty it is and how... Uh, you know, as legislators, they're not really, they don't care. Many of them don't care about what's right, what's in their constitution that needs to be changed. They're looking for something that's going to make them famous or get them a promotion to the next level, you know what I mean, or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's just outrageous to even think of that. Let me give you some stats here about New Jersey, and then I want to ask Tone a question. And and this comes from NewJersey.com. A black kid in New Jersey is 18 times more likely to be in a youth prison than a white kid. 18 times. This is the worst racial disparity rate in the entire country. So black and white kids commit most offenses at similar rates. New Jersey's racialized youth prison system deeply traumatizes our kids and does not keep communities safe with a 78 recidivism rate. 78% go right back. States invest a staggering $608,095 annually to incarcerate one child 
and this broken system has cost the state over half a billion dollars in the last decade. Brother Tone, I know you stand at the door when they come out now as part of what you do. Can you go into a little bit more detail of those stats and how you're you're helping on your end? So one of one of the things, and you know, that's, that's an excellent question. So one of the things that that, that stood out to me, um, you know, when you when, when when can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Yes. Okay. All right. So when you're young and you go into these systems and you don't know anything about them, um, while you're there, you begin to study them. You begin to, I mean, if you if you're really into ending the nightmare that is uh, slavery and the mass incarceration, um, you begin to study it. So, but it wasn't like studying it from the inside. It wasn't until I came home and I started working on the youth side. You know, I'm in the courts um, three or four days a week. I'm in the detention centers. Um, um, I'm a, I work for a detention alternative program. I work for a youth program. Like I do a lot of what our credible messenger and our mentoring. And what I was watching was all of these young people were pleading guilty and nobody was going to trial. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hadn't seen one child say, I want my day in court. All of them were pleading guilty to a certain amount of years and a certain amount of terms or whatever the case may be, whether it was residential, whether it was probation, um, whether it was um, restitution or something, right? I wasn't finding any of our young people being found not guilty, and that that was disturbing to me. Like an assembly line. Right. It was like – and everybody was trying to, you know, they were waiting for the discovery to come in. So what they were doing was they was they was they was long walking them like they do adults, right? But they were doing it on the youth side. It's a little different. So they'll let you be home on an ankle monitor, and they'll keep you stringing along to all of these court dates for like maybe eight ten months. And your family is tired of going to um, going back and forth to court. You're tired of going back to court. So you're kind of um, coerced into pleading guilty just to make this court thing go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, discovery is never turned over. When the discovery is turned over, it's an offer, right? It's never a, um, like, yeah, this can be thrown out or, 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 or checking the validation or the due process that's afforded to young people. I've never heard these arguments in our courtroom. And I'm sitting there, you know, I'm a paralegal inside for 28 years, so I'm like, this can't be due process for young people. And as I began to watch it, I began to get disgusted, so I started calling Sebo, like, yo, what's going on, man? Like, mathematical probabilities tell you that somebody has to be found not guilty, at least one, right? And then it was um, nobody has their case overturned ever on a juvenile side since I've been doing this work for the last four years. So it, it struck me kind of odd, like, wait a minute, something, this, this, this whole system is rigged. And then when I began to look at the numbers and began to look at the racial disparities, it was rigged, but it was rigged against us. Against our babies. You know, mm-hmm. that 18 to one, that, that, that jumped out immediately at me. Like, wait a minute, we, 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 we Jersey. What? We the Mississippi of the North? We worse than Mississippi? Like, who mm-hmm. could be worse? Everybody, you know, 
Mississippi, everybody compared everything to the South, right? And Mississippi being the worst. But we're the worst in the country. And then we pay more for our youth to be incarcerated than anywhere else. So it was one of those things trying to figure out how did our babies become more profitable inside the youth uh, prison industrial complex than in society. And that's when me and Dennis started working and started going hard and being like, nah, our baby cages ain't for our babies. This is not what we're doing. You could repurpose that money to the community. We could do a whole lot more. Um, but because what's coming out, right, um, when you, you hit it on the head with the recidivism rate, who pays 608000 for somebody to go right back? That's reusable somebody resources. Somebody's doing something wrong. Yeah, mm-hmm. they want that Somebody's money. doing something wrong. Yes. Return on investment. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah, and you know, there's a 95% fee bargain rate across the country, which is effectively a constitutional violation of our Sixth Amendment. And you're saying that in New Jersey, there are no, there's nobody that's not getting a plea bargain and being ushered through this thing. Uh, that would be evidence for crimes against humanity because that is our Constitution. It says the Sixth Amendment that you're entitled to a fair and speedy uh, trial by jury of your peers. You're also entitled to competent counsel uh, if you don't have mm-hmm. one. And apparently nobody's getting any of that. Uh, it's just an assembly line of constitutional violations being done on people who aren't even adults yet. And then you right. know, I was wondering to myself earlier, Tone, saying, how much is a child worth in New Jersey? And the only way you can find out is by seeing how much they're worth in prison. $608,095. That's how much a child is worth in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. You know, um, one, of, one, of the, one of the things that really get me, though, is um, the trial tax for our young people, right? Mm-hmm. The most, you know, they're, they're, they're not even, they're, they're not breaking the law. That's the difference. They're declared delinquent. So, but yet they face the same penalty, like the max, when it comes to if they go to this family court hearing um, and the judge hears the evidence, the evidence it's, it's still the same thing. So for me, when I'm looking at them, like, you know, and like I said, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't give any legal advice. Um, I, but I do try to say, you know, um, if you were my grandson, you would definitely not be taking the first, second, or third offer, right? And then they'll look at me. And then what, what ha- started happening was the parents started talking to me. And I was like, yeah, because if it was my grandson or my son, um, I would wait to the third, fourth, after the, after the third offer. I said the fourth I may consider if that's what it is, if the person did it. I had a young person plead guilty just because they didn't want to go back and forth to court no more. And that was a sad reason. And they had no evidence against this kid. Brother Dennis, um, you know, in Louisiana, they have the same problem with the kids. Uh, I think it's 100% of their population in particular counties are all black children, as if white children don't commit no crimes whatsoever. But we also know that the environment lends a lot to this incarceration rate. Um, all of us here either live in or have lived in New Jersey for quite some time. So we are speaking on experience when we talk about this state. And I was there to right. see how when they got rid of the jobs and sent them overseas, 
this big sucking sound occurred as everybody went into poverty and started losing their jobs. And then the crack cocaine came in and people started using that as a way to feed their families. Uh, and the even the police became part of the problem by going out and hunting those in the cities and counties to feed this new machine that they had gotten from the Clinton crime bill, which was like the Patterson uh, community jail, for instance, uh, the one down there that was built back in the 95, I believe. And they just kept using us as fodder to feed these machines over and over again. And it created this terrible uh, environment that we had to raise our children in. I know you stand in the gap for that. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, it's on you yourself. Okay. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a lot. Um, my experience um, was when I started working with the adults, um, and it's interesting, like being in the jail, and I'm on different tiers of different rooms. Right, each room has about fifty to sixty people. So over the course of time, I get to ask questions by a show of hands, right? And it's interesting when you're reading the you know the statistics on you know for example if you were the child of an incarcerated parent you're like 33% more likely to be incarcerated yourself i've met lineages grandparents parents children i've had parents and children in the jail together um and then when i asked for show of hands things like how many people here were in juvie and like half the room raised their hand there's a lot of people and this is a niche tier Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it's interesting to see when you talk about the school to prison pipeline, or being in there and asking those questions, and to see with your own eyes. Wow, everybody, a lot of people in here uh, went through that. We also understand that it looked different in the seventies and eighties, and then the nineties it started to look different. Now, twenty twenty three, a lot of the injustice is cloaked in in pseudonyms. Right, or basically they change the wording around to make it sound like we ain't doing anything, or, you know, solitary confinement. Well, any of the methods of punishment, I would say here we argue this, you know, like the need to have to punish these kids, the environment that they find themselves in, um, the lack of control. It's almost like, I always say like this, when I got to travel to, to Africa and I went to Badagri, which is where the, the slave ports were. Um, they showed all of the instruments that they they use in order to torture and to punish. And then one of them, it was like a big ring and had these little chains with these little tiny rings, right? So I asked the guy, what is this? And he says, oh, that that's for the babies. So I'm like, what? So the big ring was to put around a tree and the little ring was to put around the ankles of the babies so they wouldn't crawl away, Right? And when I came back from Africa, I ended up in a courtroom with one of my youth who had chains around his ankles and around his waist and around his wrist and the chains were going around his body. And he was in there for stealing chains from a cup holder in somebody's car. He broke a car and stole the chains because he wanted to buy something. Wow. So when I saw all of those similarities all put together, I hadn't really at the time made the leap in my understanding to know that that was slavery. All I said was out, to, out loud to myself, wow, this, this sure does look like slavery. <laughs> right? And to look, look at like it without knowing, 
and then time moving on and then me being in there and it's kind of getting more of my study on because you see all of the traps and the pitfalls um, and the design, uh, specifically when we talk about our environment, housing, employment, like things that we all know. Don't nobody got to argue this part. Everybody, everybody knows. Matter of fact, it's a human right. So it's not even something that needs to be argued or vouched for that a human being deserves shelter, food, and the love of his family. Like at the end of the day, regardless of what they do, it is up to God to judge, not us. But I feel like we come out of a society where a lot of people who have positioned themselves to have through their identity somehow achieved a higher state towards God, justifying their action to those that denigrated from them, right, which is my whole point on this because we'll put it around the the racial conversation and I keep seeing like, wow, some of these people really believe this stuff. Some of these people really think that they're superior. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then what can we really do if they're in a position of power? So when we started the movement, it was really a show and prove and even for me, I'm going to say a, a, a social test for me. Like, everyone talks all this, well, if you fight for your people and if you fight and you're civically engaged, then you should be able to create a difference. But, yeah, maybe to get a park open or a stop sign put on a corner, but to end slavery, when we're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry, it has been done. I think we lost you there, Dennis. You still with us? Right, but we know that this isn't the vestiges that we're trying to get rid of. So that's what we're going to do. I want to play another track. And at the same time, I also want to uh, talk about a couple good things about New Jersey because it ain't all bad. Um, You know, we're looking for unity on this issue, particularly in New Jersey. We're looking for people to get on the same page and understand that this is these problems are part of a much larger story that's happening. And that story is legalized slavery. And in states like New Jersey, where there's no protection at all for people uh, versus the 13th Amendment exception clause, we're hoping that we can get as much unity as we can. And speaking of that, uh, we're going to play a track from Queen Latifah, UNITY, which was recently put into the National Library of Congress. Uh, they're uh, I believe it's one of the first hip-hop songs to be put into the National Library of Congress. So shout out to Queen Latifah and New Jersey, who have always been at the heart of hip-hop from the very beginning. And also, we're going to have a little, a few words about New Jersey's rich roots of abolition. Uh, where I lived at in Patterson, we used to go down and clean up the areas that were part of the Underground Railroad and put markers on there. So people would remember Patterson's uh participation in the Underground Railroad, but New Jersey was a part of the Underground Railroad, and it had rich roots of abolition. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parkins and Yusuf Hassan. Today, our guests are Brother Tone and Dennis Febo, and we'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. Our ancestors were um, mixed race, triracial. They were also from mixed status households, so some were free. Some were enslaved for a term, which is slavery by another name, and some were enslaved in New Jersey, slaves for life. And that mixed status household allowed them to circumvent a lot of the uh, 
illegal part of it because you had our free ancestors helping out their family members who were enslaved. In April, Rutgers University, Newark, renamed the site of the Jacob King House after a world-renowned freedom fighter, Frederick Douglass. This site also encompasses the Plain Street Colored Church, where the school says Douglass delivered a rousing speech 170 years ago in a city once considered an epicenter of abolitionism.
Abolition Today. Classic, classic, classic here. Welcome back to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parsons, Yusuf Hassan, and our guest this evening, Anton Henshaw and Dennis Febo. You were just listening to Tracing New Jersey's Rich Roots of Abolitionism, and that was put out by NJPBS, and that was followed up by Queen Latifah, U-N-I-T-Y. So, I'd pass it to you first, uh, Tone, for comments on what you just heard. What, the, the song? Uh, and, and, of course, the history of abolition in New Jersey. Okay. Um, like, for me, like, that was, uh, I think I was gone when that came out. So we're listening to that in 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 the in the um in the carceral spaces of uh I think I was in Trenton State Prison at that time. So um but it's, the irony was is that a lot of uh, the young brothers we did come together during that movement, you know, um during that consciousness movement of hip hop. You know, mm-hmm. um we weren't warring based on geographic locations. Um, but we were in an adult male facility, so we couldn't afford to do what other people were doing in less secure facilities. Um, but the abolitionist uh, leanings and um, the history of New Jersey um, is great and it's sad at the same time. Um, you know, uh, for me, um, being the last state to abolish slavery and to reinstate it, and then abolish it, well, not abolish it, but so-called end it again, you know, um, with this idea of gradual abolition, you know, it's one of those things where we're watching this now. And like, you know, me and Brother Max and Dennis were, were talking um, last week, you know, um, any, any last year they were very silent on it and they were able to get away with it because we weren't as organized as we are now. Now, your silence is is a vote for slavery from here on out, right? We didn't shame them. We didn't publicly go after them. And, you know, they, they, they made it like um, like it was a, um, a, a nonpartisan no, like they all were. And, and, and to some extent they were because um, the, the Congressional Black Caucus in our state, um, the, um, the African-American Chamber of Commerce, um, NAACP, ACLU, a lot of orgs stood quiet. And me and Dennis was trying to figure out why. Like, why are they quiet? Why are they silent on this? But they were also calling for reparations. And we're saying, how could you call for something that's not over? Right? And we we understood the things that were going on, but we couldn't understand why our people were silent, the black frats and the Latino frats and Soros. And all of that, like, they were all coming up with all of these reasons as to why not. And we're saying, we're not asking them to, no, like, this is the demand. They they said that they were going to gradually uh, get to the point of total abolition. They didn't keep their word. So we're not asking anymore. And But we didn't go after them for being silent. And now we're going real hard at them for being silent. And then the same orgs is now coming on. They want me and Dennis to do presentations and things like that. And it was because our whole position changed that you can't remain silent on this issue. If you're silent, 
you are acquiescing to it, you support it. And we're going to make sure the world knows. And if that's not the message you want to send, then you better speak out against it. Thank you, Brother Tone. Much appreciated. Uh, Fibo, man, I was just reading this article, uh, again, NewJersey.com, where it, it again shows how we're being targeted. And it says that a total, and this was 2015, so it's probably triple the amount now. They said a total of $405,611,000 came from tickets only in New Jersey. Just tickets. How predatory can you be? And that's big money. That's kill money. That's more money than some countries' GDP. Uh, Do you see them being targeted through these uh, tickets and fines and fees that usually usher them right into the jails and prisons, and how are people dealing with that there? <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, there was a, another article from com where uh, North Brunswick Police Department had a practice they call border hunting, which is <clears throat> the main business, uh, one of the main uh, business avenues it's technically in North Brunswick, but it's bordered with New Brunswick. So people from New Brunswick go there to shop. They're predominantly black and brown. So North Brunswick, you know, polices that area heavier, pulls people over more for smaller things. And it's just a way of draining, you know, uh, shifting wealth. Um I understand that, and it's not just Jersey. I mean, we're talking all the United States. Yeah. It's I think a, there's still in the conversation speak. that some of these vicinages may not be as sustainable if they didn't depend on these practices. So It's very much like the Jim yeah. Crow period, right? Where they, they would uh, not a, criminalize not a, your you behind the wall now because of bail reform in New Jersey, you know, following the scale. You know, there's been some shifts, and it's definitely led to decarceration in New Jersey. Um, and while New Jersey has decarcerated, they are not, they just basically slavery by another name, bit and, you know, spend the same amount, but are now including secured rehabilitative facilities, right, which is just changing what it looks like. But it is a big industry, and it covers wide from the moment of the ticket or the arrest to the judge to the conviction to the incarceration to its recidivism to all the reentry programs, therapy, social workers, uh, penal counselors, medication and, and medical companies, commissary, food companies. I mean, if you're in there and you're standing there and you're watching the machine run, right? But I know for a fact our county here does a great job of trying to make sure that with that big building they got there, that as many of those beds still stay filled as possible. And now we have uh, entered a consolidation phase in New Jersey where they're shutting down a lot of the juvenile centers and the adult centers because of the level of decarceration. Some of the buildings, it's costing them too much to keep it open. So now some of the county jails like Hudson, Hudson picks up Hudson, Mercer, Cumberland, we have to save in there sometimes. So there's a lot of counties that come over here. The transporting of the body from down there, especially Cumberland, which is two hours away, 
to transport them back and forth and back and forth. They have 300 they sent up here, 150 which has been admitted don't belong in the building, $120 a day per individual times 150, and you do that per month, do that for a year, and you start to see where the number comes in. Right, so while a small charge or holding you for a bit, um, a lot of other justification comes into play when it comes to the disbursement of funds around your physical body, right? And that's what this movement's about. We're trying to, you know, uh, move the economy. Six hundred, I mean, six hundred thousand times ten youth is six million. Six million dollars mm-hmm. is solve poverty. It can literally create a whole chain effect. To solve poverty right. issues in that very same city that they're trying to lock ten kids up for, but again, it's a management of wealth. The people who work this industry do not require college education, but are quote unquote professionals. Um, I don't know how a professional doesn't require more than a high school diploma. For all the individuals that work with youth and in secure facilities who don't require any training, but to go to the police academy. Two weeks ago, I went through the entire police academy's curriculum. There are only two classes in that curriculum that deal with youth. One of them is missing children, and now the new rules around how cops can't just arrest the kid for any old reason, which has also led into a, a reduction in juvenile criminal complaints. Between those policies and the credible messenger effort that we have on the ground, the number has dropped in the last year 40%. In criminal complaints When we look at the justice system A lot of the resolution Revolves around the conversation of re-entry And what we're looking at Is we don't need them to have the complaints To begin with The less people we keep on that calendar And the more we can create community resolution And community participation That effort Like we do here in Jersey with the messenger movement And I will pass the buck here to Tone So you can talk about how new entry and the new entry model is helping with this approach. Yeah, so one of the things that we, we were thinking about um, and adding to our credible messaging um, initiative, uh, the way we move in our movement, was creating um, the mechanisms to accurately address people going back in or, and then not coming out but not going back in and trying to interrupt that concept of you're spending all of this money, um, they're coming out, they're not receiving the services while they're in there, they're not receiving the services while they're out here, so therefore it starts this revolving door. So what we did was, you know, being that we were in for a long time, we started saying, listen, we're looking at the, the current approach, and it's a cookie-cutter approach, it's a one-size-fit-all, right, instead of tailing your into the needs of the individual and their family and the communities that they're going back to. For each one of it is something different. So I didn't need an ID. I had an ID. So why is everybody going through a program, sitting down, talking about um, for six months about the importance of an ID, right? That's something else I could have been working on on that time. But more importantly, we start working with them long before they start coming home, right? We start working on those things maybe like right now we're probably two years ahead. The goal is to get five years ahead. And then the thing is, is we started working with youth on, on, on that thing. And then we started getting contracts. 
contracts. And as we started getting contracts, they're trying to figure out how does when we use new entry and we meet them at the gate and connect them immediately with these resources and all the things that they need immediately coming out, how come they don't go back? Right. So, and it's one of those things that is not easily, easily measurable, right? Because it's also qualitative in a sense that we've developed relationships with the community, with the family, with the person that is incarcerated. And when we bring them back out, they already have that relationship, what Miss Marcy calls that real relationship, um, to be successful, right? So it also operates in that economy of favors. So with new entry, it's it's a, it's a tailor fit approach. Um, it, it 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 buttresses uh, reentry because we found that reentry doesn't work. Um, it's just a profit driven model. But new entry is a person first model. Um, do we make money? Yeah, we make money, but not before we are proven to do what we need to do. And the the most of the money that we use in our new entry model goes towards services as opposed to paying people and, 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 right. and you know, that high-end salary stuff. Uh, that's awesome work that you're doing out there. And, you know, this is a very holistic conversation. We're talking about slavery, but we're talking about right. it from the cradle to the grave and all the aspects yeah. of it. It's just not in the prison walls where slavery is happening. It starts really in the cradle, and it starts targeting the children and exploiting them and turning them into reusable resources where eventually you end up in prisons. Uh, and it, it's just so much involved. Uh, Dennis mentioned Cumberland County, for instance, right, and what they were doing mm-hmm. just a couple of years ago. They pulled $42 million out of their ass to build this facility on Burlington Road over by the state Southwood State Prison and from what I understand they had money to even put a new built facility downtown next to the courthouse the Cumberland County Courthouse 42 million they're not the only ones as New Jersey reduces its prison population and brags about that it seems they're increasing their jail population so that the money is still being generated they did the same thing in Tom's River 23 million dollars Berkeley New Jersey $55 million expansion. And we see these expansions happening a lot. And I know they trace back to Chris Christie, who was a prison lobbyist for community education uh, centers, which was a juvenile detention facility that started being dotted all over New Jersey, making all kinds of money. It even went out here to South Carolina. And one occasion I went down to the facility and confronted the CEO there. It was pretty epic confrontation. I'm like, I'm going to see you put out of business. And damn if they didn't get put out of business in South Carolina. But I don't think they exist anymore. Now they've been bought out by the GEO group, right? Uh, Want to tell us a little bit about this type of exploitation? Uh, Where the jails come in rather than yeah. prisons? Yeah, um, there, there's been movement there because, um, you know, when before Christy left office, just trying to secure, uh, I guess, some of these contracts in certain ways where the state would have uh, three major facilities uh, for juvenile detention. Um, and one of the proposed places was in uh, Newark, and a lot of the communities fought back. A lot of people pushed back, and it kind of just ended up delaying the process of them building those new facilities. Um 
till today, even though it still stands as law because Christie put it that way. Now, there's been back and forth conversation with it, but no, I mean, as far as I've heard, and I don't know if Tom's heard any different, I don't know if there's any plans to move on that. Um, as for the private facilities, we did learn that every year Geo Group has been, you know, easing into the economy. I think they were, they've been like kind of doubling every year. Where now mm-hmm. they got control over Delaney Hall, and you know they still call they people still calling it CECs, but they don't know that it's Geo Group. Um, and that Geo Group also reached out to me, which I thought was funny. I bring I'll bring it up mm-hmm. into the open now, because we know moving forward what they ended up doing in New Jersey. They were expanding business, and they were trying to see how our movement would move because uh, it put danger on them and what they were trying to do, and maybe. That's one of the reasons. I know Murphy was the one that allowed for the GO group contracts to increase. Uh, I also heard Murphy did not want slavery on his ballot. Uh, there's a lot of rumors. I haven't heard it from his mouth. But none of those people have been vocal. They've also they just been resistant. Stonewall on top of GO group, a $2.1 billion company calling me to ask me how mm-hmm. I can help them. I remember. Yep. And for those who don't mm-hmm. know, Geo Group is one of the largest for-profit private prison companies on earth today with facilities all over the globe. They run entire prison industries in this uh, nation of Australia, for instance. They ran Guantanamo Bay back when they were the Haitians were coming through. That was the Geo Group, some of the worst facilities on earth. They're the Geo Group. And they're, at one point, they were the, among the top three wealthiest uh, privately owned corporations on the planet. And that's who was calling Dennis Fibo to go, hey, we want you to be our man. <laughs> wow. Dude, we were so worried when they were calling you that because, you know, we, we talked about it when it happened. I'm like, oh, man, we done reached up high now. These cats are seeing us as right. a threat. <laughs> right. You know? But, you know, we are a threat. I mean, the truth is always a threat to fascists um, and there's something else I want to touch on too, and that's the racial disparity of it all. I don't want to gloss over that too much. Remember, we started out saying it was 18 to 1, 18 to 1 that were being incarcerated, mm-hmm. black and brown children. Um, and I want to speak on that, but I want to speak on that in a musical way. So what I want to do is play this track uh, with Ann Coulter, of all people, talking about that very issue. And it'll be followed by Jack Ross. It's okay to be black, 2.0, featuring D Smoke. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parker from Yusuf Hassan. We're joined today by Brother Tone and Dennis Fibo. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. The reason people are concerned about the words they use, the reason Americans care about civil rights, the reason we are sensitive to racism is for one issue and one issue only, and that is how black Americans were treated in this country. It is because of of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. Those do not compare Irish, you know, the new groups, they always get a little bad treatment. Do not compare that to how blacks are treated in this country. You don't get to piggyback on the black experience in America. You do not get to do that just because you are a woman, an immigrant, gay, um, Hispanic. No, the rest of you can go F yourself. No, this is for black Americans. We seem to have forgotten them. It's not a rainbow coalition. Um, 
various groups, feminists, gay rights groups, and, and those who are defending immigrants have commandeered the black civil rights experience. Yes. What do you mean by that? There is the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow laws. We don't owe the homeless. We don't owe feminists. We don't owe women who are desirous of having abortion. That's what civil rights has become for much of the left. Wait, I don't, I don't understand. Understand. What have we done to the immigrants? We owe black people something. We have a legacy of slavery. Immigrants haven't even been in this country. But you see, the black experience is different from any other experience in America. There is slavery. There is Jim Crow. So I really do resent it when people come along and say, well, you can't say the, the phrase illegal alien when you use the N-word. You can't say retard when you say the N-word. You can't say, I don't know, a million other things. They're always comparing it to the N-word. So the main point I want to make is no other word is like the N-word. And culture for the win, ladies and gentlemen. Nobody saw that coming. CNN, go. Coulter, this is one of the first times I've ever agreed with Ann Coulter on CNN. Mark this down in your calendar. But Ann, you've always felt this way. This isn't new for you, right? It's not only not new for me, this is standard Republican position. I mean, uh, this is right and we're back. <laughs> the world will judge you. But God knows your heart. Black press from past years gonna settle in. God is reading the letters that we've been mailing in. Melanin skin deep, they like to meddle in. And put their knife to our wounds, sharp on the metal end. Metaphorically speaking, I met a world piece. I met a girl who was weeping, it made her pearl cheeks glisten, but no one listened. Her curl kinks covered her brilliant mind. Resilient kind, adapted, chameleon fine. Filling lines with lyrics, still couldn't do justice when touching her spirit. Because she functions from an unction, good luck with appearance. The surface ain't just where her worth is, it's her perseverance. Made it work when it didn't, walked the earth with a vengeance. Chocolate Hershey goddess with posture defying the physics. A gravity, how she still laughed when her people were pillaged. But from the steeple and the mountaintop, Jack, she's still gonna say it proudly, I'm black. Generation feeling hopeless. Looking across my shoulder, keep my eyes open, keep my mind focused. Ain't no hocus pocus, but when it's all said and done, they will all know us. Trying to bring us down, keep us at our lowest. You thought you broke us, <laughs> but you woke us. Be a leader, not a follower, modern day Moses. I'm the water to the seeds that become roses. Black and beautiful, heads on my cuticle, darkness is what I'm moving through. They want my eyes wide shut, that's just the usual. How have I not died yet? They trying to take my neck and put that shit through a noose. Black on black on black, black on black, black my skin is so black, black on crack, that's why they gave us crack. Now look where we at, once I get some reparation racks, watch how I react, keep that income tax. I need 40 acres in the pack.
You just heard Ann Coulter, We Owe Black People. And that was followed by Jack Ross, It's Okay to Be Black 2.0, featuring D Smoke and Buddy. Welcome back to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Yusuf Hassan, Max Parfus, and our guests, Tone and Feebo. Uh, I want to pass it to you uh, first, Tone, for comments on the tracks that you just heard. I'm loving it, man. Um, I, You know, I very seldom get to listen to music that's centered towards what we're doing and towards our work. You know, and you know that, that that's only because I don't really know how to access um, the digital divide when it comes to liberation music and things like that. But um, one thing that it brought to my mind and I don't know, on our discussion was like we're not we're not moving bodies across oceans anymore. We are now a part of the asphalt slave trade, and how they're moving bodies across the asphalt that they've created and propertyized. You know, and the way it's going, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm listening to the song, and I'm listening to Dennis and Max, and and I'm just sitting back, you know, and I'm in my living room, though. Sure. Like, check it, you know, I'm in my living room. I'm not in the cell, mm-hmm. right? I'm not I'm not sneaking to talk to you on a cell phone. With a right? sock right. over it. <laughs> right, you know, yeah. and, and I got my, I got the homies on the block wait, looking for the police. Mm-hmm. Like, but I do understand that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lifer, so I'm on life parole, right? But I found myself still looking out the window to see if parole was downstairs, right? Yeah. Coming, you know, so it's still like, it's still there. I'm, 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 I'm somewhat free, but I'm not all the way free, you know, if that makes sense. Uh, so yeah, you didn't, like, you're not free at all. They could come get you at any moment right. for any reason. They can come get me at any moment for any reason and don't need to justify anything. I'm not protected by the Fourth Amendment. I'm not protected by the Fifth. I'm not, you know, right. I, don't, I don't have a right to a trial, all of that, right. because all of this is now, um, what do you call it, um, administrative, right? We're not mm-hmm. under the, the, the color of law, the rule of law, right? We're under administrative law which means they can make it up as they go along and then say, oop, my bad, after everything around me collapses and then throw me back out here. Hmm. Uh, in case you do want to listen to some of that type of music, all of our music that we play on this podcast is available on our YouTube page. So just go okay. to youtube.com slash abolition today and click the mm-hmm. Abolitionist Music Playlist, and you will love it. Uh, we get a lot of compliments on that playlist, man. They're great for, like, cookouts or events, parties, whatever. It's awesome. Okay. Appreciate that, man. Uh, Brother Dennis, you want to get in on the convo? Yeah. Um, I would say, like, also hearing Tom talk and you know, me and Tom been building for a little while now and watching his growth and uh, his ability to blend his personal experience and the academics because the brother's going for his master's. Um, I mean, I felt like he's one of the embodiments of this. Like, he can put this together with the lived experience. Right. But my, my lived experience is because I was the child of someone, you know, but 
I bless the universe. I did not have to do more than 10 days inside of a county jail. But you guys tell me, that's enough, people. <laughs> but, oh, yes, it is. Uh, it's <laughs> but I didn't, you know, thank God I didn't have to go through that. But being able to take what I did and then for me as an academic or somebody I know, to be able to seed um, and love to people that have gone through this, right, and and put myself in a position of service and looking at the way the messenger movement has been evolving, especially here in New Jersey, and to watch everyone else's growth. Um, now when I talk about these things, I'm talking about them as experience, not as theory. And I think uh, from the beginning of the movement, from when I started and I was putting these pieces together and as time has gone on and how we've been able to rebuild a lot of what our ancestors built to defend and fight and advocate on that very same path right now. And New Jersey for the movement, right? Because there's New Jersey, the state, and there's New Jersey, the people. And as for the movement that we've been able to bring together, of course, with its ups and downs and bumps and bruises, but that precipitate that's left at the end right now and what we're ready to do, I feel strong that not only are we going to end slavery, but all this bad is an incident. And Jersey could be a shining light for the rest of the country uh, yes. if we get this right. It certainly could. Um, it could be the first state as well. I think you're racing with Texas to actually insert anti-slavery language to protect the citizens from the federal amendment. And that's powerful. I also want to just put in a little comment about the track that was played. You know, sometimes I just break down in tears, man, at what happened to black people in New Jersey. And I say that from a person who was there watching it happen when it happened. And when I go back now, I can barely find any black communities. They have just been decimated. And that was my family, my community, my friends, my neighbors. Uh, and I know that's happening all over the country. It's just horrible, man. It's just horrible. Anyway, we got another caller. Uh, I want to give somebody the opportunity to get in on the conversation, and I believe this is uh, Sean Darling out of Maine, another one of those northern states. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Um, the, um, my question was um, about uh, Cory Booker's um, legislation that he introduced, I think, in February about um, unfair labor practices in prison and um, I think a few other things. And I was wondering what you all thought about the timing of that, especially since I believe he was in the 13th documentary. And also, I think he mentioned the 13th Amendment in his press statement. So I'm kind of wondering, um, I'm sure he knows about the 13th Amendment also through, you know, the and the exception campaign, since you guys are organizing in New Jersey. So I'm kind of wondering about the timing and the politics um, of this legislation. Did you guys have any comments on that? You're talking about the three bills that was introduced co-sponsored by Cory Booker, right? Correct, yes. Okay. Uh, Tone? Yeah. Um, well, let's be honest. Like, Cory Booker is an opportunist. This is what he do. This is what he's always done. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. So, for the like people I in say, the back. Yeah. Um, he's, he's come into the prisons. Um and anything that could get him, right, his, his quest is to be the next black president of the United States. So why, why, wouldn't it, why wouldn't this work towards the things that he wanted to do? A lot of stuff when he, before he started bec- um, running for um, state senator, um, he was coming into prisons and all of this stuff. And he was, you know, touting our college program that we built from the ground up. 
and was like, oh, this is what we want to do. This is what we want to do on a national level. So everything for him is a political game or an opportunity to be to appear to be progressive. He has yet mm-hmm. to come up with anything original. If you look at all the things that he sponsored, they've already been sitting somewhere. So let's not, you know, I mean, I, I, I take your support. You're finally coming out and you're trying to do something. But don't make it seem like you that dude, Cory Booker, because you also got the whole prison locked down with some fake threats of, or, that you claim that somebody threatened your life and nobody could ever get to you. And the people that, that, that you claim was trying to threaten your life were lifers. And they were also used to keep them in prison, right? So, again, so it's a lot of po- political uh, shenanigans going on. Let's not be fooled. Like, I mean, I, I, I love the legislation. I love what he's trying to do. But this man has not had an original piece of legislation that he came up with yet in his political well, there, career. So let's be careful was with one, him. There was one piece of original legislation. It was the 1-800-SELL-OUT-YOUR-MAMA.COM thing he had going on. <laughs> Where if you all you had to do was make a phone call and yeah. tell somebody tell the police you, or him or his office or anybody's office that there were some guns in your neighbor's house, right. they'd give you a thousand dollars, no questions asked, and come and raid the person's house. That was his idea. Yeah. That was straight up fascism. And that's what he was doing right. in North, North New Jersey. North New Jersey, yes. And he had advertisements and everything. It was crazy. Uh, giving a thousand dollars away, all you had to do was rat out your neighbor or your mama or your daddy or your brother or your enemy or somebody that you just don't like. So that's the type of uh, personality he has. And yes, I even see these bills as uh, offering an alternative to the constitutional movement that's happening, saying, no, you don't have to change the Constitution. We'll just put in some bills that will fail over and over again for the next 10 years. So don't worry about that Constitution thing no more. Let's go with the bills. The bills are the way. To me, like it's kind of a distraction and takes the movement that we are initiating in New Jersey and nationally and giving an alternative that would be something to divide the space that we're trying to uh, cover here. Um, am I mistaken? Feel free to speak. I agree. All right. Well, indeed, <laughs> um, there was something else that uh, was something else that I did want to get on. Cause, you know, we talked about the money now being moved into jails and into halfway houses and into the ankle bracelets, the monitors that cost us, but like up to three hundred a month for those ankle bracelets, ain't it? Right. Right. Yeah, up to three hundred a month. They're finding so many ways to exploit the people who have the least to give. Um, and they have no Fs to give about it. There's no compassion at all. Uh, just recently, they started showing some fiscal compassion by working with brothers and sisters like you guys and taking some of that money that they was putting out, the $23 million, the $30 million, the $50 million for these expansions, and say, hey, we're going to give a couple million for you guys to be able to do something with these crazy Negroes out there because uh, we're not having any luck. 78% go right back to where they came from inside our mm-hmm. prison. And I'm so mm-hmm. proud to know that you're out there in the gap doing that, literally saving lives and futures. Because, you know, you say one of these kids, there's generations that are going to be affected because you did that one thing. You know what I mean? Generations to come. And you never know uh, what you have created when you do that. So you guys are awesome. But there was something else I wanted to talk about that was prison labor. There's a, you know, now 
the United States and the European nations have enacted laws that are basically um, seizing goods that are being sent from overseas if they're suspected of being uh, made through forced labor in places like China or Vietnam or wherever they may come from. Um, And yet, we have the largest prison labor population on earth right here in America. It's it's so hypocritical and mind-blowing. I saw a a news clip recently where they got like a billion dollars worth of goods, they're saying, that was made partially with forced labor overseas. A billion dollars annually is what Unicor makes by itself. And Unicor is our national prison labor supplier, working with corporate, private, and public entities to supply uh, services and labor from inmates at pennies on the dollar, if anything at all. The hypocrisy is mind-blowing. Would you like to speak on that, Dennis? You might be on mute, bro. Sorry, I was trying to unmute. Um, yeah, that's crazy, bro. <laughs> I feel like you you find these little gems that keep making the uh, the picture look bigger and bigger. And <laughs> the thing we are we know this is an international conglomerate. You know that. I know, like he's saying, it's like you, you, it's once you understand the abolitionist movement, you're able to look at society for the matrix that it is, right? I'm like. Not only that I understand the the notions of slavery, but when I'm in these buildings and in these facilities, I'm able to see it there too. Um, The ability to see that is what's going to give movement, whether it be anti-slavery, reparations, I mean, anything that deals with economic impact, right? Uh, There's a lot of ground here that still needs to be covered in discussion, um, what we see here in Jersey is that every time, if we solve a problem, they're vulturing from above just to figure out how they're going to make the next buck with the next problem. Like, they're always a step ahead, right? And here is, like, because a lot of our people don't understand business and economy and don't understand the way these things flow, we can, they're not able to position themselves to sort of divert this pipeline, it's like tapping a pipeline. You know, making the making it flow this way to be able to pay for people, places, and things that we need in order to uh, to solve a lot of the, the systemic issues that we see, right? And we're able to remedy up to a certain point, um, but also that sense of family that we bring as well is another that social capital that these institutions can't bring. They're removed. They're disconnected. They see everyone as a threat. It's through the eyes of you know literally slavery, right, a slave or overseer, right, looking at everything in distrust, and it creates this real deep-seated resentment amongst the people that I feel like a lot of the times they are dealing with the system. It's in the form of rebelliousness. Um, But, again, because we don't have the instrumentation or the knowledge that we need in mass in order to start really saying this is how we declare how we're going to organize ourselves economically, so that we can create a, a counter system, right? And that will have to happen. And as we're building it in Jersey, um, you know, we've just been arguing for 1%, right? That's how we did it in Cumberland. The lady said, how do we pay for this? 
I said, how many youth do you have in detention? Like 20? She said, yeah. Okay, cool. If you think we could save 10? Yeah. All right, cool. You owe us $6 million. Right? It's easy. Easy math. Anywhere else you look in the system, if you point at those kids and at all of our adults that are locked up behind bars, especially the ones that don't really need to be there, because there's a lot of those, right? Especially drug crimes. Um, that whole thing could be alleviated through the very same money, right? But this is what the opposing systems are doing. They're just trying to validate themselves, uh, remain relevant so that the money could continue to flow their way. And until somebody comes up with a counterstructure, uh, they're going to continue to be successful. So the only other way to beat slavery by another name is for the people to become business savvy. Thanks, Dennis. Uh, Tone, would you like to chime in? Yeah, I would. I, I would say you know I'm looking at Unicor, but you know and watching Depcor for New Jersey, right? right? Depcor. That is that is, mm-hmm. that is that is that is the, the what the national well it's the states akin to the national uh, company, right? And the Bureau so of State did, Use well, Industry. Right. Yeah, the Bureau of State Use. So this is where Christine Todd Whitman, Christy, um, and um, the current governor, um, um, well, it was Jim McGreevy and Murphy. Uh, yeah, don't forget, Obama. don't forget McGreevy. <laughs> we call him McGreevy. We call him McGreevy in Jersey. And um, the current governor, Phil Murphy, they all get their death made off of the same labor, right? Mm-hmm. And what wound up happening was we had one of our young people um, that was uh, he was there he got paid eighty eight cents a day to be there, like their business manager on the inside. So we would get their annual reports and their annual earnings, and we would watch how they would take based on the labor. And the cost of the labor, because he also did the state pays for every month. So we knew how much they were paying everybody that was on first and second shift in in DEPCOR to produce in Rawway. And what they were, the, 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 the cost analysis, to, to Dennis's point, the business. So the annual report, one of them, they spent like maybe, I want to say, 200000 to make Thirteen million, and it wasn't all in. The, the money wasn't going to uh, our carceral citizens. It was like a lot of other. Um, they were billing for other costs because the top, uh, the top. What do we call them? Um, they're not ITIs. They were um, the, the, the the power pros got the most, and. And it was depending on whether or not they got overtime determined how much money they really made. So, and when we began to watch that, we began to dissect that. But we didn't have anybody on the outside at the time that we could trust with the information, right? We, you know, we weren't, we're deliberately closed off. We don't have access to people to where they could take this data to what, what Dennis is talking about and what you're talking about, Max and really analyze this stuff on a business level to really get at the nuts and bolts of what they're really doing and how they're really profiting off of this free labor system, right? So, Mm -hmm. and for me, 
Like you, when you look at, I was a paralegal for 28 years. So I'm doing briefs. I'm doing, you know, all of these billable hours. So when I, when, I, when I came home, one of my lawyer friends was like, listen, I want to hire you to come into my law office. And they gave me two tiers. Right, and I was like, "Yeah, I don't want to do this." I said, "But um, I can refer you to some guys." And if I was doing um, uh, as paid attorney work, it was seventy-five dollars an hour. No, I'm, I'm backwards. Paid attorney work was fifty dollars an hour. And if I was doing any work that was came through the public defender's office as a pool attorney, I could charge up to seventy-five dollars an hour. And here it is, I was getting paid $3 a day. Wow. Right? Mm. And just to have those skills, never been to law school, um, learning through correspondence and learning on the fly, learning from the best paralegals in the state, um, that was a skill that I didn't realize that that could make that kind of money. But look at what they were saving. Right, you're talking about the public defender's office budget, just the prison industrial complex or the the, uh, the criminal legal system in itself. How much money they were saving by having paralegals that was dedicated to the work, doing the same work that they were paying attorneys to do for three dollars a day. It's astronomical when you factor in all of these costs. I don't think it's coincidental either. Like I said, there's tickets of $450 million a year just in 2015. That's what I said by now, it's probably triple that, $1,500 million a year or billion and a half a year just on tickets alone because that's the trend we've seen. Everything has tripled since back then. But right now, I'm looking at a, uh, a teaching article from the Office of Justice Programs at the U.S. Department of Justice. And it's not like they don't know. The title is Prison Industries in New Jersey, a 200-year chronicle. That's how long it's been going on. And when you were talking about Debt Corps, which is the Bureau of State Use Industries, um, and also the Bureau of State Farm Industries, which is Agro and Industries, uh, together they had $25 million a year that they generate making apparel, textiles, bedding, graphics, furniture, Refinishing furniture, even and this is this is so historical, right? It, I mean, it, it shows how things have changed. Remember, they said slaves built the White House. Well, that three hundred million dollar state house renovation that was done by the inmates, right there. A lot of that was done by the inmates. Um, they create jobs. The agricultural end generates eleven and a half million in revenue annually, annually and uh, the ones that make the uh, like the apparel and textiles, that's $15 million annually that they generate. And they get no money from the state. This is all money generated exclusively on prison labor. It's amazing what you can do with just 2,400 slaves. Uh, it is. Uh, Dennis, anything on that? Or Tone, whichever one. You guys can just chime in as you like now. Go ahead, Tom. Say again. Did he said you can go ahead now, if you want to chime in further. Oh, yeah. So for me, um, with, with, with the ticket thing, you know, with watching what they're doing now, right? So here's, here's I think we talked about this um, last week, Max. 
what we were talking about, um, it's $1.5 billion budget right now for, 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 for incarceration in the state of New Jersey. And it's been that at its height, 32,000 32, of, of people that are incarcerated. That's at the height. We're under 10,000 now, and it's still $1.5 billion, right? <laughs> like, it didn't, the population shrunk considerably, like two-thirds. In the prison, right? yeah. In the prison, right? But the but the but the the price tag to the to the to the New Jersey taxpayers has stayed the same. And then what we what, what, what we're not really getting into in all of these areas of structural violence that we're talking about, we're not talking about the power of these police unions to maintain the level of funding. They're not giving it back, right? This is what they build their families on. They build their futures on. And they said it doesn't matter just if the beds can be filled, right? So you were talking about um, debt core, right, Uh, Mm -hmm. agri-core, right? You're talking about they made an explicit and implicit promise to the Jersey Department of Corrections to keep those positions 97% filled as a contractual agreement. We will have bodies to fulfill this no matter what happens, right? We went from 32,000 to under 10,000, and we still going to keep these positions of slave labor fulfilled, right? Um, people don't see um, the bed space for the halfway houses as convict leasing systems, right? right. They're paying mm-hmm. them, right? Probation this is an extension of convict leasing my, my, right now, right? These are real things. They're saying, oh, no, we're going to pay you to do this and this and that, and we're going to lease our slaves to you for your company. Like you said, Geo Group, right, the, the halfway houses that they uh, control. But what they have is also this complicit agreement to not interfere on each other's territory, right? So you'll see Geo Group in North and South Jersey. And I think Mercy just infused them with an additional 15 to 17 million, right? Because he didn't want to give it to New Jersey Reentry Corps and um, Volunteers of America here in New Jersey, Volunteers of America, Delaware Valley. He didn't want to give it to Dan Lombardo. He didn't want to give it to Jim McGreedy, right? Um, mm-hmm. He wanted to give it to Geo Group because Geo Group is what? Major, major players with Goldman Sachs, where he used to work. So, it is all of these 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 uh principalities and powers. Yeah. Arrangements to keep this process going. But we're not talking about right striking the major blow is doing what we're doing now. And also mm-hmm. how do we weaken these unions, right? Because they're very powerful in this process. And they're the ones that are keeping debt core going. Because they're the ones that are fueling the body to be in place to keep that ninety percent, ninety-seven percent agreement. Right, right, and that's a common practice. Those uh, contracts that go from anything from eighty percent to one hundred percent occupancy for as much as twenty, twenty-five years. So right. when we heard Joe Biden talk about how he, he sounded like Obama saying, "Oh, we're going to cancel our contracts with the private prison companies." Those contracts, most of them don't even come up for review until long after he's gone out of the office 
So it's just paper tiger talk. There's nothing behind that. You know what I mean? Uh, so it'll be three presidents later, and then the contracts will come up about these 80 100% occupancy. But what you're doing right now, that's what the GEO group is afraid of. They even said as much on the film 13th and how they plan to redirect their revenue generation into more aftercare uh, aspects. This could put a for-profit private prison out of business because it makes what they do illegal, constitutionally illegal, and that's a threat to their industry. Uh, and I think they know that. All right, so I got a strategy and a plan for the rest of the time here, right? I'm going to hit one more track. When we come back, we'll discuss it. And then I want to give both of you brothers an opportunity to just say whatever you want to say to our audience, to us, to the people that are listening live, as well as those that will hear you in the archives. So we're going to start with the hypocrisy of U.S. sanctions on prison labor. It's a max mix with just a couple of clips put together, and you'll hear the music of Michael Jackson's They Don't Really Care About Us, because they don't. You're listening to Abolition Today, Abolition Today. Dot org with Max Parsons and Yusuf Hassan. Our guests today are Tone Henshaw and Brother Dennis Feeble. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. Nearly a billion dollars. That's the value of goods the feds have seized at U.S. ports of entry over suspected ties to forced labor. That, according to recent data from Customs and Border Protection, lots of companies stand to lose millions while their goods remain in custody. CNBC's Andrea Day joins us now. Andrea, good to see you. Good to see you, too, Carl. So we went inside one of America's largest ports and saw firsthand this mountain of goods being detained, everything from solar panels to bedding, the floor tiles from some of the biggest brand names. Those companies now scrambling to prove their supply chain is clean. Take a look. Wall to wall. Millions of dollars worth of solar panels on its way into the U.S. and all stopped in its tracks. An overwhelming amount of cargo. Over here, a load of xanthan gum. It's a 40-foot container full. This is a top priority for CPP and for the department. And on this side of the warehouse, boxes and boxes of vinyl floor tiles. Halted. This is not just a supply chain security issue for us. It is an economic security issue for the country. Right now we're in a warehouse where we conduct examinations. Our cameras got exclusive access to Customs and Border Protection's battle to stop products produced with slave labor. We're probably holding somewhere in the vicinity of 200 or so full container loads of this commodity, about $15 million. All of it shipped to the Port of New York, Newark, and all of it detained. The team here at the port enforcing the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, ensuring goods made with forced labor in the Xinjiang region of China do not enter the United States. This is modern-day slavery. American companies now forced to deal with the consequences of a tainted supply chain. It is challenging, especially when your supply chains go into China. Anne-Marie Highsmith oversees trade at CBP headquarters in Washington, D.C., making the issue even more challenging for American companies. The Chinese government has taken affirmative steps to obfuscate those supply chains and prevent businesses from learning uh, the conditions under which those products are manufactured. Her message to American businesses. You need to know your supply chain. During our visit at the port, 916 40-foot shipping containers filled with merchandise were under investigation. That represents about $60 million. 
And since late June 2022, nearly a billion dollars worth of goods halted at the port. Topping the list, electronics, apparel, footwear, and textiles. Watch this. Hello, welcome to the Church of Fuck You. I'm St. Patrick. Well, there are some amazing people who walk this earth. Truly amazing. But no one is more amazing to me than a fucking hypocrite. Watch this. This week, we examine the Prison Industries Act, model legislation written by the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. In 1979, the Prison Industries Enhancement Certification Program eased restrictions on the use of prison labor by private companies. We're seeing expand everywhere throughout the United States, the, the use of prison labor. We have 2.7 million people in prison. That's one out of every 100 adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a huge workforce, and corporations really want to tap into it. Alex Prison Industries Act leverages loopholes and provisions meant to prevent unfair competition to the benefit of private corporations. Specifically, it diverts a portion of the money deducted from inmate pay to private sector prison industries expansion accounts, creates a private sector prison industries oversight authority composed of stakeholders appointed by the governor, and drastically expands the cases in which prison labor can be used. Supporters view this legislation as a way to provide cheap labor while offsetting the cost of imprisonment. One of the reasons that we exist is to be a tax reduction organization, and uh, we lower the cost of institutions and lower the cost of operations to the institutions. Opponents worry that these policies amount to slave labor, undermine the wages of all workers, and create an economic incentive for imprisonment. Our system has been so corrupted that these private companies simply buy the politicians, they get them to pass any laws that they like, they create more prisoners, and then they turn around, profit off the prisoners, and then make them do nearly slave labor and profit off of that as well. 37 states and four other jurisdictions have certified prison industry enhancement programs. As of June 30th, 2010, 30 of those programs were active. Let's establish what is a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who simply behaves in a way that is not in alignment with how they speak. So a hypocrite says, you should do this, and then he goes and he doesn't do that. He says, this thing is good and this thing is bad, and everybody should do this good thing. And then he goes and does the bad thing. That's a hypocrite. Abolition. 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 So there you have it. The The hypocrisy of U.S. sanctions on prison labor. And that was the Max Mix. Welcome back to Abolition Today with Max Parthas, Yusuf Hassan, Tone, and Fibo. And we can also talk about the hypocrisy of, of reporting, selective reporting. But I'll pass it to our guest first before I uh, throw in a comment on I, top of this. I just want to say real quick, we've got about seven minutes before we got to finish up. So let's take two, talk about what we just heard, and then the other five will go to our guests to wrap it up. So, Brother uh, Tone? Um, for me, um, it just it just hits home um, exactly what I've been feeling my entire 30 years of incarceration, right? Like, I'm, I'm just thinking about my brothers and sisters that are still behind the wall here at these uh, concentration camps in New Jersey, um, these slave labor uh, plantations, um, like, if they can hear this, right, and I'm 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 right now figuring out a way to where, like you know, I just say even when I when I get this when I go to the uh, the recording of this to be able to transcribe this to send it inside through JPEG so they have this data, right, and and to be able to organize it for them to really understand why we're doing what we're doing and then why we're pushing the way we're pushing it's going to be so important and that's what gives them hope, right. Because 
it's not just people who don't have the lived experience um, fighting, but it's the people who who know that this is wrong to lived experience in concert with people with lived experience that are championing this fight for them and saying like, nah, enough is enough. We know, slavery is not going to exist. And like I said, you feel those those uh, I, I don't even know what, how to describe them, but that feeling of being a slave constantly, even more intense in those places in uh, in New Jersey, a um, little less out here, though it's still here. Um, I'm not 100% free, but I know in this fight, I'm fighting for the freedom of not just uh, the brothers and sisters inside, but for a free society as a whole. Amen. Thank you, brother. Uh, Dennis, you go. Yeah, it's like the <clears throat> under hypocrisy conversation. Um, I always say, um, speak on the freedom for my body, for our people, you know, who we are born into and grow up in an absolute hypocrisy as second class citizens. That's still one of the, the, the oldest colonies in the world at the hands of the United States with all kinds of laws and practices that were put in play because they claimed we were juvenile at mine. And that always stood with me because um, the only way you're going to get over on me with something snake is if I'm too dumb to catch what you're saying. So for those of us that can continue to refine our minds as warriors uh, so that we may battle whenever they try to use uh, their air of superiority and use it as ammunition against them. That's how we keep winning. I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Dennis. Um, I want to go to you for the closing statements, but I have one question that I would like to answer. In it. Uh, how can we help or anybody help with uh, Senate concurrent resolution number 135? Any closing statements or something you want us to know besides that? Yeah, I say to remember there's two bills because it's a, a what is it called? Concurrent oh, resolution. Yes. So, so yeah, ACR for the for the assembly, which is ACR one twenty five, and then SCR one thirty five. ACR one twenty five from Angela Assemblywoman Angela McKnight. SCR one thirty five from Senator Brian Stack at a Union City. Um, the bills are up, um, and I just pitched a packaged it this way. There's four white men who stand between New Jersey and its freedom. Uh, you have uh, Assemblyman Anthony Varelli, uh, who is the chair of the committee on the Assembly side. And then you have Assembly Speaker Craig Coughlin, who last session refused to put it up on the uh, for vote, but refused to put it on the agenda, <laughs> therefore killing the bill. And then on the Senate side, we have Senator James Beach out of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, um, that is the chair of the Committee for Slavery on the Conversation on Slavery. And then you have uh, Senator um, Anthony Scutari, no, Nicholas Scutari. He is the president of the Senate, and it is his job to put it on the agenda. Once these four go, and they, if they all put them up on the agenda, we're all confident that this will pass the vote and it would get to the ballot 
If it is done before the end of July, it goes on the ballot in November. If it goes past July into lame duck after the, their their break, then goes into lame duck um, where we would supposedly be able to push this. So what we really need is all eyes and all pressure on those four white and white men. Um, that's pretty much it. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, Brother Tone? Yeah, um, I, I second what Dennis said. Um, that's what, what our current push is. Um, the only thing I would add is um, for anybody that's out there that's done it to encourage our state and the people in our state, right? You know, Malcolm says we're not outnumbered, we're outorganized to organize to stand up to end slavery in our state, right? This is something that can't stand. Um, we're better than this. Um, we, we're, not only are we better than this, we're we going to do better than this, um, and we're going to, you know, we're going to shine. But we want people to encourage people that they know in the Garden State to stand up against slavery. Thank you, brother. I want to say um, on behalf of both the hosts here tonight that we uh, thank you so much for being here with us on Abolition Today. We appreciate the work okay. that you're doing, um, mm-hmm. and it's an honor to spend some time with you just discussing this issue about what's happening in New Jersey and bringing attention to it, much-deserved attention to it, so that people understand this is a human rights violation of the highest order. We're talking about crimes against humanity happening to children, even, and we need all the help that we can get to protect them. So let's start with... Um, those two bills, ACR 125 and SCR 135. And we look forward to seeing you brothers on here again. Um, Brother Yusuf, want to take us out? Yes, sir. So we definitely want to thank our sponsors and partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, SEMA Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and the Abolished Slavery National Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash abolition today, and our Facebook page for all the news, information, and music you hear on this program. Follow us on Twitter at abolition today one, and we're also available on all major podcast platforms and on Amazon Music. This week's Bridging the Gap will be Max reading part three of the nine parts we played in our season four, episode five episode where we broke down Frederick Douglass's speech, I denounced the so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud. That was delivered 135 years ago today in 1888, Washington, D.C., after traveling for 25 years around the country and analyzing the effects of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. This segment is entitled The Condition of the Negro. Then it will be followed up by B.B. King's Chains and Things. We'll be back next Sunday, God willing, April 23rd, with another master class on slavery abolition. So until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace. Abolition. Abolition.
custom during 200 years to the unlimited possession and exercise of irresponsible power, the love of it has become stronger by habit. To assume that this feeling of pride and power has died out and disappeared from the South is to assume a miracle. Any man who tells you that it has died out or has ceased to be exercised and made effective tells you that which is untrue and in the nature of things could not be true. Not only is the love of power there, but a talent for its exercise has been fully developed. This talent makes the old master class of the South not only the masters of the Negro, but the masters of Congress, and if not checked, will make themselves the masters of this nation. It was something more than an empty boast in old times, and it was said that one slave master was equal to three northern men. Though this did not turn out to be true on the battlefield, it does seem to be true in the councils of the nation. In sight of all the nations, these ambitious men of the South had dared to take possession of the government which they, with broad blades and bloody hands, sought to destroy. In sight of all the nation, they have disregarded and trampled upon the Constitution and organized parties on sectional lines. From the ramparts to the solid South with 153 electoral votes in the Electoral College, they have dared to defy the nation to put a Republican in the presidential chair for the next four years, as they once threatened the nation with civil war if it elected Abraham Lincoln. With this grip on the presidential chair, with the House of Representatives in their hands, with the Supreme Court deciding every question in favor of the states as against the powers of the federal government, denying to the government the right to protect the elected franchise of its own citizens, they may not well feel themselves masters, not only of their former slaves, but of the whole situation. With these facts before us, tell me not that the Negro is safe in the possession of his liberty. Tell me not that power will not assert itself. Tell me not that they who despise the Constitution, they have sworn to support, will respect the rights of the Negro, whom they already despise. Tell me not that men who thus break faith with God will be scrupulous in keeping faith with poor Negro laborers of the South. Tell me not that the people who have lived by the sweat of other men's faces and thought themselves Christian gentlemen while doing it will feel themselves bound by principles of justice to their former victims and their weakness. Such a pretense in face of the facts is shameful, shocking, and sickening. Yet there are men in the North who believe all of this. Well, may it be said that Americans have no memories. We look over the House of Representatives and see the solid South enthroned there. We listen with calmness to eulogies of the South and of the traitors and forget Andersonville. We look over the Senate and see the Senator from South Carolina and we forget Hamburg. We see Robert Smalls cheated out of his seat in Congress and forget the planter and the service rendered by the colored troops in the late war for the Union. Well, the nation may forget. It may shut its eyes to the past and frown upon any who may do otherwise, but the colored people of this country are bound to keep fresh a memory of the past till justice shall be done from them in the present. When this shall be done, we shall, as readily as any other part of our respected citizens, plead for an act of oblivion. We are often confronted of late in the press and on the platform with the discouraging statement that the problem of the Negro as a free man and a citizen is not yet solved. That since his emancipation, he has 
disappointed the best hopes of his friends and fulfilled the worst predictions of his enemies, and that he has shown himself unfit for position assigned him by the mistaken statesmanship of the nation. It is said that physically, morally, socially, and religiously, he is in a condition vastly more deplorable than was his condition as a slave, and that he has not proved himself so good a master to himself as his old master was to him, that he is gradually but surely sinking below the point of industry, good manners, and civilization to which he attained in a state of slavery, that his industry is fitful, that his economy is wasteful, that his honesty is deceitful, that his morals are impure, that his domestic life is beastly, that his religion is fetishism, and his worship is simply emotional, and that, in a word, he is falling into a state of barbarism. Such is the distressing description of the emancipated Negro as drawn by his enemies, and it is found reported in the journals of the South. Unhappily, however, it is a description not confined to the South. It has gone forth to the North. It has crossed the ocean. I met with it in Europe, and it has gone as far as the wings of the press and the power of speech can carry it. There is no measuring the injury inflicted upon the Negro by it. It cools our friends, heats our enemies, and turns away from us much of the sympathy and aid which we need and deserve to receive at the hands of our fellow men. But now comes the question. Is this description of emancipated Negroes true? In answer to this question, I must say yes and no. It is not true in all its lines and specifications and to the full extent of the ground it covers, but it certainly is true in many of its important features. And there is no race under heaven of which the same would not be equally true with the same antecedents and the same treatment which the Negro is receiving at the hands of this nation and the old master class to which the Negro is still a subject. Woke up this morning after another one of those crazy dreams. Nothing is going right this morning The whole world is wrong, it seems Oh, I guess it's a change that binds me I can't shake or lose these chains and things Got to go to work this morning Seems like everything is lost I got a cold-hearted, wrong-doing woman and a slave driving balls. I can't lose these chains that bind me. Can't shake a loose these chains that bind me. 
If we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cotton. Did you miss your deadline to renew your Medicaid coverage? You can still send your completed annual review form to Healthy Connections Medicaid. You may be assigned to another health plan, but you can ask to come back to First Choice within 60 days of renewed Medicaid eligibility. It's your family. It's your choice. First Choice is the right choice. Renew and choose us. Visit selecthealthofsc.com renew to learn more. Are you a hands-on problem solver with a knack for mechanics? Join our team at Broom Heating and Air. We're currently hiring service technicians and installers. No HVAC experience? No problem. We offer training for the right candidates. If you or someone you know has a mechanical background, you can take your career to the next level with Broom Heating and Air. Enjoy competitive benefits, growth opportunities, and a close-knit family work environment. Apply today at broomheating.com careers. That's broomheating.com careers.